Hi, you're listening to iiPod, the official podcast of the Duke Lemur Center in Durham, North Carolina. I'm Matt Bortz, Curator of Fossils at the Duke Lemur Center. And I'm Megan McGrath, Education Programs Manager at the Duke Lemur Center. Hi, Matt. Hi, Megan. Today on iiPod, we're going to continue our discussion about Shafak, but detour into morphology, locomotion, anatomy, and even briefly... How to keep squirrels out of your bird feeder. My name is Gabe Yaponsich. I am currently um, an assistant professor of medical education at the Duke University School of Medicine. Gabe is also a paleontologist. This is not an unusual overlap in roles, teaching in a medical school and doing research in paleontology. I had a, a long career to get here that was wandering. After high school, Gabe headed to the University of Wisconsin to major in civil engineering. He was going to help build bridges. But when he realized that wasn't the right fit, he searched for something else. And I went to English, English literature. And I found myself studying Victorian literature, like the birth of the novel, those types of things. But what I was really interested in was sort of the interaction between scientific ideas and popular culture. And the novel was one way that those ideas were coming out. And of course, Darwin, 1855, was like smack in the middle of this. And so this was the big scientific idea that was uh, kind of trickling out into popular consciousness. And so that's what I honed in on. I was interested deeply in evolution. I loved it. I loved, you know, paleontology, dinosaurs as a kid. And I was like, why don't I just go do this? Gabe earned his bachelor's degree in English literature at the University of Wisconsin. And then, still thinking about Charles Darwin, went on to earn another bachelor's degree in evolutionary biology of the human species from... At Columbia University in New York. And I studied evolutionary anthropology there, evolutionary biology there. Uh, I worked at the American Museum of Natural History as a volunteer. He also crossed paths with Dr. Doug Boyer, a paleontologist who is then affiliated with the City University of New York. He studies early primate evolution and just by happenstance happens to do field work in Wyoming, in Montana. I was born in Montana. I spent a lot of time in Wyoming and it, it was... It was just amazing to be able to return to sort of the areas that I grew up. I remember being a kid, like, in the mountains, looking out over these basins that I didn't fully recognize were full of fossils. But then I was able to go back doing field work in, um, like, the Bighorn Basin of Wyoming and find some of the earliest primates there in North America and loved every second of it. Dr. Boyer, who was one of the originators of a shared specimen database called Morphosource that you can check out online, then joined the faculty of Duke University. Gabe followed and began his PhD in evolutionary anthropology at Duke. Gabe's dissertation fed the growing Morphosource database as he worked with Duke Lemur Center specimens, carefully scanning and cataloging them to share with researchers all over the world. With that work, he zeroed in on primates, approaching them as an anthropologist and as a paleontologist. That led to investigating questions of primate origins. And then as start, these things start to pile on to each other, like, oh, you get to go to field work in Montana, in Wyoming, those places that you love and long to go back to. So all of these things start to layer back onto each other and then you then sort of figure out, like, oh, yeah, this, this fits really nicely. This feels like what I should be doing. And a duke... Gabe could combine watching the lemurs walking, hanging, and leaping around the lemur center. The best living models for potentially the earliest primates. With looking at fossil and osteological specimens. Osteological specimens are basically bones that are from species that are still walking around today. 
As Gabe continued his research, he started looking more at the lemurs in real life. Like everyone, he was fascinated by the most dramatic behavior. In particular, he wanted to figure out the locomotion of the Shafak. Their leaping and jumping in the forests of the lemur center have always enchanted our visitors. But in Gabe's case, they caught the eye of a researcher with a background in engineering. All right, so since we're not using a visual medium right now, just let me take a second to describe the behavior we're all talking about. The technical term is vertical leaping, but that can be misleading since they move horizontally through the air. But while they're jumping and landing, Shafak will keep their bodies vertical with their shoulders kind of staying over their hips. And they'll do these amazing, powerful jumps between trees. They're taking off and landing from the trunks of the trees. So these are trees with trunks narrow enough for them to hold on with those grasping hands and feet. You observe these animals, you see the dramatic behaviors that they do, you're like, I want to I want to do that. And that's unique at the lemur center, because only one species at the lemur center does that, but it's not unique in the lemur world. There are some other species that use it, right? Yeah, there are some other species and some other primates. Um, it's kind of, any kind of categorical description of an animal's locomotion is a little bit fuzzy, because they're adept at doing all kinds of things. So it's kind of like you go out, observe animals, what are they doing frequently, what is sort of their habitual movements. You have different scoring systems for counting, like how often do they move this way versus this way, and then you sort of get this overall profile based on frequency. And some species, like Shafox, are included as vertical clinging and leaping. And yeah, like, as you mentioned, it's the, the clinging part is vertical. They're holding on to a tree and leaping away from that, which has its own challenges as a form of locomotion. There are other species that do that. There's bamboo lemurs that are kind of in between there. Obviously, bamboo, very vertically oriented, not a lot of branches off of bamboo, and so you have to be adept if you're a bamboo lemur at holding on to this vertical pole and then moving between them. Tarsiers are also, they're not lemurs, but they're also very, very good at vertically clinging and leaping from there. And what you're doing from there, like maybe you're like tarsiers do, sitting, observing, and then popping off to grab an insect. So it's sort of like a, a, a ambush posture in a sense. And so if you're really insectivorous, if you're small-bodied, the surrounding forest is filled with small, relatively small diameter, smooth, vertically oriented poles. That's sort of like... In my mind, that's sort of the environment that I imagined would be very favorable to the evolution of the traits that we see in primates. Well, it's interesting that you bring up environment because people ask all the time about the lemurs living in the woods of North Carolina. Are the trees similar? Are they dissimilar? Do they climb all the way up? Do they not? And something that surprises a lot of people is that they see a big, sturdy pine tree and they think, oh, the lemurs must love that. But of course, you've done observations. We have all seen the Shabak yeah. avoid those trees because, yeah, they have a rough surface, but they're huge trunks and that's much larger than what they would grab onto, right? And so you can even see in how they move around the forest here a little bit of what they might have been evolved to grab onto. And it's interesting just thinking about, again, the relative efficiency of being able to kind of sit in one spot and then if you need to, rather than like kind of clamoring through the branches to another spot, like being able to kind of jump just the next spot that you see. Or in the case of where the cockroach shafak are found in the northwestern forest where you don't have a huge amount of overlap in that canopy layer, not wanting to come to the ground I think would be a pretty good driver potentially too because FUSA may be a little more mm -hmm. likely to get you down there. So for you, why is it important to figure out how an animal like a shafak gets from place to place? It's 
been argued that this form of locomotion is potentially foundational to what it means to be a primate with then additional elaborations off of that or variations in movement, locomotion style off of that. But that is one of the most argued about ideas uh, probably in primate origins. So can you start us off then with the beginning of primates? Like what do we see in the fossil record? In the evidence that we have of the earliest fossil primates, which is the bones of their skeletons. But it's not like you're finding complete skeletons, right? Like, what bits of information do you use to start figuring out this question of locomotion? So a lot of paleontology is driven by dental morphology, or the shape of teeth, because teeth are very hard and they preserve well. Luckily, in the foot, there are also some bones that have similar characteristics. They're small and they're dense, and so they don't degrade and they get fossilized at higher rates than other elements. Long bones like tibia, femur, those tend to break up over time, but these small bones within the foot, small and dense compact bones, preserve at higher rates. One of those is called the talus or the astragalus, and that is what I would call sort of colloquially the ankle bone. If you flex your foot towards your shin and then extend it, that that movement is happening at the talus, at the ankle. And then another bone that I would call colloquially the heel bone is the calcaneus, which is where your Achilles and tendon will insert. So you got a lot of musculature attaching to that, to that bone. So those two bones are pretty informative for our understanding of, of fossil primates because they're just preserved a lot. My research has mostly focused on the morphology of the talus. So when you're looking at what makes the talus different here and how it could correlate to leaping, you were looking for some elongation like you see in other primates, right? You can have sort of elongation of the talus, which is just as part of this suite of overall elongation of the hind limb. The foot gets elongated, the hind limb gets elongated, and that lets you do a lot of displacement or movement under muscle power while you're leaping, which is a, a good way to have a more powerful leap. And that was just the beginning of your research? Something else that I've done a lot of research on is a silly little feature called the posterior trochlear shell. Posterior just means the back part of the talus. Trochlea means spool in Latin, and it me it's spool-shaped, so our, this talus bone has this spool-shaped portion, which is where that motion of flexion and extension at the ankle is occurring. Uh, shelf means you probably have shelves in your house. <laughs> that one needs a little less explanation. Some early primates and some living primates have this posterior extension of bone away from, from the trochlea. And it was observed very early on as something that early fossil primates have. The functional explanation was not clear at all. In living taxa, Shafox have a big posterior trochlear shelf. So there was some sense that this was associated with leaping in some way. And some of the early ideas were, as this posterior extension away from the main pulley part of the talus, it would sort of stop plantar flexion. Maybe good for leaping, maybe not. I couldn't help but notice you said this was an earlier idea. Does that mean this hypothesis didn't work out? Because you're basically describing a catapult, right? If you think about a catapult, having a stop to the arm of the catapult makes sense. But that's not really how leaping works in an animal. You're not, like, leaving 
anything behind and trying to send something very far. So stopping motion actually doesn't help. You probably would want to power through as far as you can before you leave contact with the ground because that lets you put more force into to the leap. So that like didn't make sense to me as it functions as a bony stop. So all these ideas are mulling around in your head, and then what? I was doing some archery with my dad, <laughs> and we were using compound bows. And one of the mechanical advantages that they've that these compound bows have, you can draw. You have to put a lot of energy into the draw, but at at, at a certain point, you don't have to put that much energy into the draw because they've got cams going around the bowstrings, and so you get to this point where it's an asymmetry in a pulley that lets you take off the force that you have to put in to draw the bowstring and lets you relax when your bow is fully drawn. And so I was like, wow, these cams are really, really cool. And I came back to work and I was looking at the posterior trochlear shelf on Talus and I was like, oh, this goes from being a nice circular shape of a pulley into one that has a big asymmetry. I wonder if this is functioning as a cam in the primate ankle. So, okay, if I've got this right, the idea is that it's like a cam, which is basically a mechanical device that can transform rotational motion into linear motion. Did that idea hold up to in your investigation? So that's where the thought started, but not where I ended up. I found some similarities in the posterior trochlear shelf and its function to functional studies of grip strength of the human hand. So we move from a discussion of ankle bones to a comparison to human hands. And while humans are odd among primates, we are different from a lot of our cousins in a lot of different ways, we share some features, including grasping digits and fingernails. At some point in the evolutionary journey of primates, primates no longer needed their claws. You might say that as the species evolved or as our group diversified, we were motivated to use the muscles of the hand to grip rather than dig in with our claws. In the human hand, they've done studies, so all of these flexors that are coming off your, your forearm and running into your hand and help you flex your digits. The strongest grip strength occurs when those are stretched a little bit and your hand is extended. That's when humans have the strongest grip. So grip strength in primate hands and feet then becomes the central question. They're using these hands and feet for grasping, and especially for the shafak, for clinging. And this isn't just about anatomy. This relates to diet and environment, too. One thing, if you've got a bird feeder and it's getting raided by squirrels, one thing that you might do is switch it to a really smooth vertical pole. And so that squirrel's going to have a harder time with it. It can't get its its claws into. But that's something that primates are really quite good at. They've got these big, fleshy, tactile pads on grasping feet. And so if the properties of the, the surrounding trees are smooth rather than rough, then you might be motivated to hold on to those with a divergent hallux and a big, fleshy pad. And so you would get uh, those types of features evolving together as a package. And then if you're doing it for long periods of time and holding on to that, then evolving something like a posterior trochlear shelf, which reduces the energy required to maintain those postures, would be beneficial. So the substrate, that is the surface an animal has access to, is important. We can piece together how the history of how primates navigated different substrates, such as pole-like trees or delicate branches, 
within the fossil record. We can also infer ancient behavior from watching living primates. If you find a foot skeleton with a really divergent big toe, it starts to look like our hands, then you're on to like, oh, this is very good for grasping something. That dorsiflex foot posture is exactly what shafaks have as they grasp a vertical pole or branch or tree. Across all lemurs, there's a pretty prominent posterior trochlear shelf. And then this was noticed first in descriptions of fossil material. And amongst fossils 45 million years ago, 50 million years ago, 55 million years ago, these primates had big posterior trochlear shelves as well, which led people to think that they were adept leapers. But my argument would be that we're seeing animals that are good at clinging to vertical things. And we've talked a lot about primates and the specific like ankle bone that we keep talking about Mm -hmm. in primates um, and how we see that related to movement. Um, Does that hold if we look at other mammals where you don't see really the same vertical leaping and clinging because you don't see those ankle bones? Is that kind of adding to your theory here? Yeah, I think it's the full suite that goes into informing this. If you've got a grasping foot and you're using your big toe against all the other digits to hold on to that substrate. You don't have claws to engage and sort of into the substrate and sort of hook in there. Um, And then you're combining that with the ankle morphology. So it seems like it's part of the package of, of what it means, at least certainly to be a lemur and potentially is very informative for how this order of animals were first differentiated from others. I sometimes feel like the key feature being a gripping toe is something we're not as sensitive to because we don't have that ability. And so we're not as curious about our feet as much as we are hands and brains and things that are that are shared with other primates that humans also have that's very obvious. And so I think it's interesting that this is like a key trait that in some ways took a while for us to excavate. I mentioned some of the muscles that were going into the foot from the leg that, that could be affected by different foot positions. The one that goes behind the talus through the screws in human anatomy is called flexor hallucis longus because it only sends a tendon to the to the big toe. So if you're coming at it from a human anatomy perspective, you're like, okay, this muscle flexes big toe. That's not necessarily very interesting from a grasping foot perspective. But if you study mammalian anatomy, even if you go to a chimpanzee, that muscle, which we call flexor hallucis longus, is called flexor fibularis. It sends tendons to big toe and digits three and four. So even in our closest living relative, this muscle has a very different sort of pathway. Then if you're talking about digit one, your big toe, three and four, now you can really talk about grasping overall. And so, yes, the lens of how funky human feet are and human foot anatomy and human musculature can potentially bias you in particular ways to, to and not open up avenues of exploration. It's a great reminder that we all view the world through a lens. Like, what it means to be a primate is what it means to be a human for us, but we are arguably one of the strangest primates in terms of how everything plays out in every aspect of our behavior and morphology. That lens can also make us look with wonder at an animal's extraordinary behavior, like the leaps of a shafak, and then miss other behavior and its importance. But, for example, we are in awe of a cheetah's 80-mile-per-hour sprint, but we might miss how a cheetah can walk for hours a day tracking its prey. 
you observe these animals, you see the dramatic behaviors that they do. You're like, I want to, I want to do that. Nobody sitting necessarily sitting around like, I want to figure out how they're so dang good at holding on to these trees. And I didn't ask that question either, but the evidence or what I was seeing, the evidence I was collecting, led me to that. As I, my question was really driven by, this is an unknown. A uh, bit of morphology. It's been observed and described for now 50 years, but no one's come up with a good idea. I had sort of this epiphany doing something completely unrelated, doing archery with my father. <laughs> I had an idea of how it might work. It didn't tend to work that way as I gathered more evidence. And then it ended up being hopefully, potentially, a good explanation for why that feature evolved and and then hopefully again reasonable explanation for what that means for primate evolution all right so from all of this you get to the question of how you can gather information on exactly how this leaping works currently what i'm focused on with the shavox is just getting biomechanical data about how well they can leap. So if you know anything about Shafak, you know they're bouncy. They're kind of like Tigger of, of the lemur kingdom. They don't even put their hands down on the ground. They just bounce, bounce, dance, and it's cute and adorable, and you can show these videos to students forever, and they'll fall in love too because it's very charismatic. What's missing a little bit from our understanding is how much force they're using to generate as they do their leaps. How high can a Shafak leap? That kind of question has not been asked and answered in a scientific study. And so what me and some collaborators here, both here at Duke and in uh, Ohio, are doing is trying to coax Shafaks to jump off of a force plate, which will collect all the information about the forces that they're using when, when they jump up to a branch. And we'll be able to change the height of the branch and sort of get some information about how are they landing on the branch? Are they sort of pulling themselves up? Are they jumping and landing with their feet first? So that is currently what I'm working on. So really the, the questions, these are physics questions, like getting data on biomechanics, getting details about force and mass and acceleration. How do you figure all that out? I have to build an experimental apparatus that can be used to ask this question and get the data for this question. So that's what I, I've been working on. So we have this big tower now that we'll be able to put a force plate underneath. And it's kind of, it's like a chimney, but nicer than a chimney. And they have to jump up and hopefully land on the branch. And that's about to go into the animal enclosures. And so they'll get used to it and sniff it and mark it and do all the interesting things that lemurs can do with something that's new and exciting. And then hopefully we can get good data about their leaving. But you're not just looking at the Shafak, right? We're also doing similar things with other species there. We'll do it with the rough lemurs. Uh, we're already investigating the, the dwarf lemurs and how good those <laughs> furry little tubes are at leaping, which is not, not as good as others. As someone who appreciates the variety of lemurs and their movement and the ways evolution has changed primates through time, do you have a favorite primate? I've never worked with them, but I've always, always been partial to gibbons. Their acrobatic movement has always 
spoken to me again it goes back to like being eight years old and doing what you love and if i could be a primate i'd be a given gabe thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about so much of your research especially your work with the lemur center and our cockerel shavak we will have to bring you back on iipod for an update when you've got your findings published well thank you so much for giving us so much time in discussing the the ins and outs of primates thank you for having me this has been very fun for joining us on this Duke Lemur Center journey. Subscribe and discover more episodes each season. We look forward to sharing more about the Duke Lemur Center with you soon. And in the meantime, follow us on social media and visit us at lemur.duke.edu. A special thanks to Julie Bortz who edited this episode. And thank you and goodbye for now. From Matt and Megan and all the primates at the Duke Lemur Center. Mm-hmm.